what I think this means is that social distancing is important. We know six feet is important, but further is probably better. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the July 15th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are discuss the current national status of the pandemic, discuss dermatologic and ocular findings in patients with COVID-19, and discuss the current status of the mRNA-1273 vaccine. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters and are free of influence from Pfizer Incorporated. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Allwater. Uh, sure thing, Faith. As everyone knows, over the past two weeks, it's been fairly clear that the United States has been overrun in many areas by the novel coronavirus. In fact, more cases in some states than have occurred in a single day in any others. So unfortunately, the pandemic is by no means under control in many sections of the United States. And this bodes pretty poorly. A um, number of groups have tried to display this pictorially. I thought this particular group does a nice job. Obviously, this is statewide, and of course, it's really communities and cities that may be very different, but it does give you a snapshot of really how states are handling the virus. And as you can see, what has really happened over the past few weeks, even in New England, where uh, states had been under good control, there's a trend towards increasing cases, probably with liberalization and moving out of phase one to two, three, or even four, although some states are keeping things under control. Uh, this really is, I think, a, a moment of crisis in my view from a public health perspective, because if hospitals become overwhelmed, then governor is going to be forced to be taking draconian measures again. And I think everyone wants to avoid stay-at-home orders. But to me, it makes sense to consider returning to phase one uh, to really close a lot of venues like bars and indoor restaurants, to emphasize social distancing and mask wear, even if consequences are lobbied by fines and so on and so forth, because this is really a public health measure. These rates have to be declined enough. I mean, we're wanting to open schools in the fall. And I think if you don't have the numbers low enough that you can test easily, meaning you get results in a day or two, and then do contact tracing, 
it's going to be very difficult to maintain this during the winter respiratory season. So, you know, my son uh, was tested last week. It took him five days to get the test result, and this does not bode well. And many have heard about the supply chain issues with testing that's preventing either doing the test or having timely results. I thought this week we might just touch on a number of topics that you may have heard in bits and pieces from a variety of sources. And I call this little section beyond the respiratory tract for COVID-19. They're just really snippets by no means comprehensive of some of the things that COVID-19 might have in its repertoire for your patients that might be infected. I think the dermatologic manifestations have gotten a lot of press. This was, a, I thought, a lovely article that had nice pictures in it from an international registry of 171 patients looking at a range of spectrum in this group. Uh, granted, this is a convenience registry, but tried to categorize them along the spectrum of severity of COVID-19. On the left-hand side is pernio or chilblains. This is uh, typically painful toes, sometimes fingers, with painful qualities and a burning-like sensation. And generally, people who have had this often are at home. They have mild to moderate illness. There are a variety of presentations otherwise in the skin, including vesicles even, welts, more erythematous macular papular, traditional kind of viral exanthems that can be seen in a range. And then all the way on the right-hand side, you see uh, what this group calls retiform purpura, so this is when there's often vasculitis and leaky blood vessels, and you're getting purpura as well. And typically this is uh, people in the more severe phases of illness where there could be microangiopathic thromboses and, and often patients are experiencing ICU care and have ARDS. But there's certainly a range of findings. They're nonspecific and not unique to COVID-19. In this series, 12% of lesions occurred before any other symptoms, which is something that's interesting. And the most commonly reported in this registry were chilblains or, or pernio. And although classically following cold exposure can be seen uh, after viral infections. And, and just to be clear, this is not lupus pernio, which is uh, cutaneous sarcoid. Another area that's gotten some attention are ocular findings in COVID-19. And this is a report from China, early experience. Uh, most people were hospitalized with moderate or ICU level requirements of care uh, for their COVID-19. And there's really a range of findings, but mostly representing chemosis or conjunctivitis. In this one series, uh, a little under a third of patients had eye findings, so it seemed to be quite common, although I, I think it's much less so, at least in my experience, that some of the patients that we've seen here, uh, but con conjunctivitis, epiphoria, or increased secretions are not unusual, and it seems to at least be reported to date uh, more in hospitalized patients, but of course, uh, this could merely reflect reporting bias. GI symptoms got a lot of press early on. Uh, there's nausea and vomiting, not unusual with any acute viral illness. But diarrhea is something that's seen. Uh, you know, we see diarrhea sometimes uh, in influenza, especially in childhood illness. 
And here in COVID-19, the ranges are two to 50%. Uh, the pooled percentage range that I could find from reports that are categorized by Dominico in, in this study was about 10%. And some may precede respiratory illness. A couple of studies tried to suggest that presence of diarrhea boded for more severe illness, but I don't think those studies were robust enough to really make that conclusion. Of course, in the press and elsewhere, there have been issues raised because viral RNA is found in feces, and the question is whether this could be a source of transmission, especially with a so-called fecal plume following flushing of toilets and so on and so forth. No convincing evidence, I think, that truly implicates that yet, but it remains a question for study. The loss of taste and smell is something that seems to be much more prevalent in COVID-19 than other viral infections where it can occur as well as any of you who may have had a stuffy nose or upper respiratory tract illness. Many times uh, taste and smell are dulled. What we have seen so far are a vast range of anywhere from 20 to 90% of hospitalized patients seem to have some loss of taste and smell although most studies uh, really were just subjective reporting rather than anything done objectively. Another study suggested that most patients who had this uh, seemed to have mild disease versus severe disease. I'll just mention that in terms of background, uh, especially for patients over 40, uh, a fair percentage will have some reduced taste and smell as a baseline, and even 3% uh, have lack of taste and smell, and it's important to at least ask that beforehand. And most people appear to have early recovery, although there's uh, some reports that it's associated, if it occurs with severe disease, it may not. Uh, but this does not seem to uh, be virus damaging the olfactory nerve in most cases. Neuropsychiatric complications, anyone, especially older patients, could be subject to delirium and sundowning. This is a study from the UK looking at uh, hospitalized patients of uh, 62% of this group had strokes, and most of those were over 60 years of age, uh, no surprise. Uh, the other, though, had altered mental states, and interestingly, half of those people were under 60, so not a group that you would typically think of as having a delirium or something of that nature we tend to see in elderly patients. Now, this group, subgroup, uh, they said seven had encephalitis, not well characterized, which suggests the virus is active in the CNS. And then there was a group of psychoses and affective disorders, but interestingly, only two of that group seemed to have prior uh, mental illness. So unclear at this stage if this is just uh, the severity of illness, but uh, it is worthwhile that this is something we see quite commonly in the hospital. And interestingly, We've had a handful of patients at Johns Hopkins where really the only reason they're staying in the hospital is because of prolonged encephalopathy that then suddenly clears weeks and weeks into their hospitalization. And uh, we've not been able to find virus in the CSF. However, I'll, I'll say that other series looking at neurological or psychiatric issues in COVID-19 really haven't described uh, an authentic encephalitis. For example, one a series that really focused on MRI changes that at least they were reporting in 37 patients, mainly white matter changes and hemorrhagic uh, changes, mostly centered in the temporal lobe, interestingly, which might account for some of the delirium and so on. 
only one patient in their series had a CSF positive for RNA for the virus, and that may have been because of perhaps blood contamination. Another autopsy series report in the New England Journal in 18 patients who had neuro findings all really had hypoxic changes at autopsy, and they couldn't find any evidence of encephalitis, viral, or viral cytopathic effects uh, on their tissue analysis. Lastly, I'll just mention prevention. The news was mainly centered on a phase one study in the New England Journal. Now, I'll have to tell you, this is fairly unusual for the New England Journal to publish a phase one study, but of course, with COVID-19, there's much attention. This is the Moderna vaccine. And of course, we discussed this when a press release was announced earlier. And interestingly, that press release really uh, focused on a smaller number of patients and it wasn't clear how well everyone in this series did. There were 45 patients who were exposed to three different uh, doses of this novel message RNA vaccine that uses a RNA for the spike protein of the coronavirus, and it's surrounded in a lipid nanoparticle, and this is injected, taken up by cells, then uh, produced. This phase one trial, of course, we don't know if there's any efficacy. It really is looking at whether you can engender antibody responses. On the whole, there were mild adverse reactions, although uh, there were two doses given, and the second dose, especially with the higher dose selection, seemed to cause more local injection-type reactions. Uh, The antibodies made were not only against the spike protein, but also the Importantly, the receptor binding domain, which has been identified in other studies as being more effective at really neutralizing. And uh, the neutralizing antibodies, though, very little were made with the first dose, and they really needed the booster, the second dose, and then it was really the highest level at 100 micrograms. Now, there's already a phase two trial of 600 people in progress, uh, looking at two doses that will be concluded hopefully by the end of summer as well as a phase three trial with up to 30,000 enrollees planned that uh, should be underway also this summer, even before there's phase two results. So clearly there's a push to try to compress everything, to try to uh, obtain the necessary efficacy studies as soon as possible. Okay, so face, I think we may have some questions for this week. Thank you for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. Dr. Allwater, this is our first learner question. Are there any updates on patients who have recovered from COVID-19? Can they still be considered medically immune, at least for this season or a limited duration of time? Yeah, so we're only six to seven months into the uh, pandemic. And if you look at other respiratory viral infections, there's a mixed bag, for example, about whether you have uh, lifelong immunity or not. For example, measles virus, if you have natively acquired measles, people tend to have lifelong immunity. If you have acquired influenza, you certainly most likely can get influenza again the next season, although maybe it's attenuated a little bit. Uh, My sense is with this novel coronavirus, we don't know for sure. We think that people probably have sufficient immunity for a period of weeks to months, if not years after this. But we already know 
oddly that in the 20 to 40% or more of people that are asymptomatically infected, they do not generate very high or durable antibody responses. So one of the questions out there is, is it possible to be reinfected? For example, if you, especially at asymptomatic infection and might be re-exposed two or three months later. The difficulty is we know that viral RNA can be produced weeks and weeks later intermittently, and it's not clear that this is infectious virus. And whether this is someone that's reacquired the virus, but the body is containing it and therefore you're reshedding it, really we can only understand this best with very careful studies and genetic sequencing to see if it's the same or different viruses. So a uh, difficult question to answer, and I think it will take time until we have much larger studies in greater numbers of patients to really consider this question. Dr. Allwater, this is our second learner question. What is your opinion of pool testing? Do you think it may help with opening schools or businesses? Yeah, so pool testing suggests that you could take 10, 50, perhaps 100 samples all at once and batch test them in an effort to try to reduce the need to run you know, all those tests separately and use many more reagents. Uh, this may have some impact if it's done carefully. Of course, if you have a positive pool, you still have to go and then individually test those people or have those swabs available to run uh, those tests. So it will be some relearning to do this and protocols but we are facing many areas that the limitations in testing are reagents and supplies, pipette tips, for example, solutions and others. So I think this is one way that may be necessary with the idea that if you're going to try to test, for example, uh, classrooms once a week or once every two weeks or sports teams and so on, or businesses, uh, that uh, we probably don't have the capacity from a supply chain standpoint, or even the testing platforms to be really running so many tests on a daily basis. The estimate from some modelers are that we need to run 4 million tests a day, and that's supposing that we have been able to really suppress COVID-19 new cases in the United States to a sufficient degree that we can really get rapid test results and contact trace. We're nowhere near that at the moment. So it is, this is an option if, if indeed supply issues are at hand. So I think this will be certainly something that either commercial enterprises or public health authorities may espouse much more commonly as we press ahead. Okay, and our last learner question. Do you think evidence supports acknowledgement of a larger role of aerosol transmission of the virus? Yeah, you know, Faith, there's been a huge debate from the very start on droplet versus aerosol transmission. And uh, honestly, I think, unfortunately, people are sort of losing one of the key points. And I think one of the key points are, we've learned now that when people speak or sing, or if you're in poorly ventilated spaces, that you're able to make smaller than droplet particles with your speech or coughing, 
and that those may travel further than six feet and they may suspend in the air a bit further. Now, is this something that's gonna be spread through the HVAC system and so on? There's not abundant evidence that that's the case. But if you're in a crowded elevator, for example, or a poorly ventilated restaurant and this and that, this is one of the issues that perhaps accounts for super spreading. For example, if you're in a choir and someone in the rear row is singing and, and, and indeed people are being infected beyond the six foot range, for example. So what I think this means is that social distancing is important. We know six feet's important, but further is probably better. And that face mask wear is really important to reduce the ability of making aerosols or small micro droplets that will travel further than six feet. Okay, thank you. As a reminder to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Alwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And um, I'd really write to your public health authorities, uh, your political leaders in your state, to really try to help grapple with this problem, especially in states with a large number of cases, because until we can get case rates down and do contact tracing, I really fear that the, the aspects of trying to open up our economy fully uh, won't happen. We know it can happen because that's what's happening in Europe, and we really need to try to model those particular aspects. But thanks very much for listening. Thank you.